WDBM East Lansing. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. I'm Emmanuel Berry, and you're listening to Impact Exposure. Tonight on Exposure, we explore the confusing and evolving world of medical marijuana laws in Michigan, talk about disappearing liberal arts schools, and hear the musical stylings of the band The Bard Owls, as well as artist Ben Arthur. These stories and more tonight on Impact Exposure. But first, in 1978, Justice Lewis Powell's opinion on the University of California versus Bakke case set a standard for affirmative action, essentially saying that race could factor into a university's admission process. And in 2003, the United States Supreme Court extended Powell's decision in the Grutter case. These cases are now being challenged. The Supreme Court heard arguments last week in a case where a white female student who was denied admission to the University of Texas believes that the university's policies are bounced in favor of minorities. Here today to talk about the case and the history of affirmative action, we welcome MSU lecturer in law, Phil Pacillo. Welcome to Exposure. Thank you, Emmanuel. It's great to be here. And it's I'm really excited to talk about this. So, uh, so first, let's talk a little bit about the um, latest case, uh, Fisher versus the University of Texas. How does this kind of fit into the scheme of things? Is this going to evolve or change the law? Is this yeah. trying to um, revoke what's been done in the past? Yeah, it's really interesting because the the situation in Texas is kind of unique. Um, before the Gruder and Gratz cases, the uh, federal appellate court that oversees the state of Texas, decided, contrary to what Justice Powell had concluded, that um, race and admissions could never be permissible, uh, other than for, to achieve a, 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 as a means of remedying past discrimination. But achieving the benefits that flow from diversity, that's not going to cut it. Um, and it was, so it, it was that, it was that argument that um, was taken to the U.S. Supreme Court in an effort to abolish, you know, racial um, preferences throughout the country at universities. Um, so for a while there, the state of Texas was in a unique situation. Um, we are not allowed to consider race, but we don't want to have a situation where um, members of traditionally underrepresented groups are not here. What are we going to do? And one way of Texas, one way that Texas dealt with that situation was the Texas legislature passed what's become colloquial known as the uh, 10% plan, yes, yes. right? Which is um, if you place in the top 10% of your class at your school, at your high school, you are automatically guaranteed admission to the University of Texas. And as it turned out, it had pretty significant results. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and by some measure, the university was able to achieve a similar level of enrollment of traditionally disadvantaged and underrepresented groups that it had before when it was considering race as a factor. Uh, as a factor, right. So it, it couldn't consider race as a factor any longer, but it still was getting pretty good results. And then the question became, um, after the U.S. Supreme Court finally put its stamp of approval on uh, the consideration of race as a factor in the Grutter and Gratz cases, mm-hmm. now what? And the University of Texas thought about it and said, you know, it still couldn't hurt um, to consider race and to even further enhance the numbers of uh, traditionally underrepresented groups that we have. We, we, we can always do more. So that's what the um, University of Texas began doing. So once again, they instituted a policy. We're going to consider the race and ethnicity of our applicants again. And they began to do that. Um, and it did. It, the, the, the evidence indicates that it hasn't had much of an effect, that very few students who are admitted to the University of Texas since the consideration of race as a factor was reemployed, um, very few are getting in uh, on that on basis. The, on that basis of right. solely being of, of their race. Right, right. And that, uh, and that actually um, it works against the university's program. Because um, if it's not even doing anything, right. then what's the point of having a program? Exactly. Yeah. Why, why are you considering everybody's race if it's having no meaningful effect? And that's, interestingly, that's, that's what the plaintiff is arguing here. The plaintiff is arguing that um, you, you can't consider my race, you can't consider anybody's race, 
unless it's actually having an impact. It's actually achieving uh, the goal of, again, en- enhancing or developing or achieving the benefits that flow from a diverse student body. They don't have the numbers exactly. to kind of prove it. So yeah, it's, it's almost like the, the, the 10% program worked too well. Um, the, the substantial numbers of, of racial and ethnic minorities were at the university, and um, we don't have to be concerned about this anymore. So, and, and, and even the consideration of race wasn't really having uh, uh, a meaningful effect. So oral arguments were presented last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, I guess what was your impression kind of from the justices, from the way their questioning was going, both for the lawyers who were defending affirmative action and those right. who were defending um, Mrs. Fisher or Miss Fisher? Yeah, it was really interesting. And, and what, what adds a whole interesting dynamic to the situation is that you have the recusal of Justice Kagan. And that means that you now have four justices who would ordinarily be inclined to hostility toward um, programs where race is considered, and then four justices who are ordinarily inclined to be receptive to these kinds of programs. Um, And the questioning at oral argument really bore that out. You had a lot of questioning by, for the lack of a better term, the conservative justices, Um, very hostile to the arguments that the um, uh, university was making. And and one question that was asked over and over again was, um, you know, at what point do you no longer consider race? And a concept that was introduced um, when the University of Michigan cases were decided back in 2003 was this concept of critical mass. Mm-hmm. And that was something that you heard the University of Michigan emphasize over and over again. And what exactly that means it's kind of hard to tell because it's it's the the it, and I'm not sure if it's an, a concept that's capable of meaningful specification and the universities are pretty clear about that. Um, we, you know, it, it's hard for us to tell what critical mass is, but the idea is that you don't want to have just some representation from. Um, you don't want it to be a token. You don't want token. Right, you don't want token. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You don't. Want, you don't want to have token representation of of particular groups. You want to have meaningful representation of particular groups in, in a, around campus, in the classroom. And you don't want the person who is, uh, for example, a, uh, an Asian American. You, you, don't, you don't want that person to have to be the representative of all Asian Americans. You yes, want, you want exactly. you know, sufficient numbers of members of each group in, in, in whatever context you're talking about. Um, and so one thing that the justices would ask over and over again, um, back in 2003 when Grutter and Gratz were decided and currently at the Fisher argument, the question is, well, you know, what is critical mass and when do you know that you've achieved it? And uh, the University of Texas, uh, through uh, the university's attorney, um, indicated that, well, we consider, we, we actually um, discuss this with students. We have the students' um, complete evaluations. We get feedback from the students. We take a look at the data, the admissions data, just to get a sense of where we are in terms of admissions. So, um, and, 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 and they, they, they ask for deference. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's sort of a, a very um, uh, trust, just trust us on this. You know, we're, we're, we, we have significant academic experience with this kind of thing. Uh, it's hard. It, it's not like it comes down to a hard and fast figure. You know, 20%. Okay, great. We're great on African-Americans because we have 20%. Yeah. And that, that's, you can't, right. You can't really do that. No, no. And so the university is not about to do that, but that's not going to stop the, the, the justices from trying to get them to concede that at some point there's enough. What's that point? When do you know? Mm-hmm. And the university just doesn't have a good answer to that question. Um, an interesting argument, uh, some interesting questioning that the plaintiff's attorney faced was, well, what what exactly are you suing for? What are you seeking to recover? It's not like um, Abigail Fisher, the plaintiff, she's already graduated college. She's not going to be applying to that program again. She's graduated. So exactly what, how has she been injured? Um so she might be able to say, well, look, the fact that I'm white was taken into account and that can't happen. But... Um, if she wasn't going to get in any way, then that sort of detracts from her argument that, that she was damaged in any way. So that was the, the plaintiff's attorney had a lot of hard questioning from the, 
the judges on the liberal side of the line who'd be more receptive to to um, policies like this, saying, you know, what what actual injury did you, did your client suffer? You know, you what if 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 it can be shown that she wouldn't have gotten in anyway. Um, then how can you claim that she's been injured in any way? And if she hasn't been injured in any way, then why, why is she finally here? Su- why yeah. are we here? Exactly. What's the What's the point of your lawsuit? What are you seeking to recover? Well, well, regardless of uh, how how the case is going so far, a lot of universities are kind of you know they're they're waiting to see because this potentially changes policies all across the country. I guess. Yes. Um, where do you see this case potentially going? What What are some of the potential outcomes mm. um, in this case? Yeah, it might be. I, I don't think that you will see the program sustained in its current form. Um, I think if the justices, uh, you know, it might be that they rule against Abigail Fisher for the reasons that we were talking about. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I think there's only a slight chance of that. I think they took this case because the um, justices on the conservative side are interested in molding uh, the Grutter formula so that it has less um, or that, that, that it's not that it can't be used by universities uh, as it was being used before. I think what you'll see is an emphasis on race neutral alternatives like the 10 percent program. Um, and I think what we can expect is a ruling to the effect of if you've got some mechanism like the 10 percent plan, you've got some race neutral means that's having significant impact on the student population and, and meaningfully enhancing the number of students who fall into traditionally underrepresented groups, then you at that point are in a very difficult position to consider race. You, you, you shouldn't be considering race, um, especially if it's not going to have a meaningful impact like we were talking about before. Mm-hmm. Um, so only if you can show that additional consideration of race will have the sorts of significant results like we saw in Gruder, like a jump from 4% to 14%, like something like that. Um, so I think the, if, if the conservative justices have their way, then we're going to see something like that. On the other hand, if the, if the liberal justices have their way, um, then I think we're just going to see a reaffirmation of Gruder, this understanding that it's really up to universities to make the critical mass call, um, and that Race-neutral alternatives are great, but why not allow the consideration of race uh, uh, at at a school like the University of Texas where, yes, you have one race-neutral means that's working, but why not allow others as well? Mm-hmm. Well, um, thank you so much for coming in and speaking today. Very informative. Oh, well, it was my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Impact Exposure. On the 2008 Michigan ballot, the Michigan Medical Marijuana Act was passed with an overwhelming majority of 63% in favor of legalizing medical marijuana under state law. But the law has not been cut and dry. State and local drug policies have made it difficult for employers in the workplace and students on campus. I was about 13 or 14. I took a hard fall on the football field. About a week later, my back started hurting me real bad. I thought it was just my spine injury. Turns out to be it was a herniated disc. But it still bothers me from now and then because it inflames. In his two-bedroom apartment, Tanner looks to his medical marijuana for assistance. Pretty painful at times, and the only thing that could help it and relieve the stress is medical marijuana. I know when to be medicated and when not to be medicated. But the university has a different outlook. MSU is subject to the Drug-Free Workplace Act of 1988 and the Drug-Free Schools and Communities Act Amendment of 1989. According to an email cited by Kent Casella, Michigan State University spokesperson, MSU will make certain accommodations for registered patients. But usually, even if a student has a card, it's forbidden on campus due to marijuana being a Schedule One drug. Tanner is a student among others who understands the risk of having a card on campus, but disagrees with university policy. It is a risk because I think it's if you have your card and you're on campus and you only use it at times whenever you're ready to get medicated, you just go outside somewhere on campus. There should be like a smoke spot and just go out there and just do your thing and come back. It shouldn't be a big deal at all. Tanner puts his medical card to use in Lansing at the Greenleaf Clinic. Curtis McKinnon is a professional consultant with Greenleaf Clinic. He explains exactly how the system works. We treat all persons, once they come to that window, as if they're new. In a sense, we check their ID, we, we check their license, and uh, medical marijuana card. Curtis knows patients from MSU who come to Greenleaf. He has a difficult time seeing eye-to-eye with the drug policy on campus. It's an agriculture college. It should be doing research to see if this medicine has any long-term effect. 
The MSU drug policy is not the only thing that remains ambiguous. Since the Medical Marijuana Act has been enacted in 2008, problems continue to arise. Protests have been held at the Capitol against a pending package on recent legislation. We did not have to come here once or twice a year and file our grievance with the people that are inside here that are supposed to be representing us. Senator Rick Jones explains exactly what this package entails. So this bill will seek to clarify some of the things in the medical marijuana law. One would be that you could not get your prescription online. It would require some sort of patient relationship with the doctor and ensure that only appropriate people are getting their medical marijuana card. Another part of the law is that felons could not dispense marijuana as a caretaker. It also would clarify how marijuana is grown, locked up. However, Curtis turns the other cheek to this pending legislation. I would like to see the legislature find something else to do than to try to write bills trying to protect the public from medical marijuana. It's too new. We don't need any other laws. What we need is more businesses. Joe Kane is a consultant for Michigan Patients and Caregivers United. This is a co-op where growers and patients interact with each other. It's the most efficient and the most economical way for patients to receive their medicine. He's a major sponsor and leader for these nonviolent protests. Uh, the one thing these rallies do is they pull us together. Yeah, we get together, we talk, we converse, and it's just merely us exercising our First Amendment right. Joe takes his stand to keep the businesses alive. We're in this fight. We're not going to stop. This is a constitutional issue. What we have been up against is a crusade. And unfortunately for everybody in the state, the crusade has been against sick people. We've been thrown in jail. We've had our property seized. And even a couple of us have been killed. Legislators will vote on the bill Wednesday, October 17th. Calls can be made to legislators encouraging them to vote either yes or no on the package. For Impact Exposure, I'm Lauren Gutleski. You're listening to Impact Exposure. A new study is putting traditional liberal arts schools on the endangered species list. Here to talk about the current state of and the future of liberal arts colleges, co-author of the study, MSC Professor of Educational Administration, Roger Baldwin. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Thank you. So in your research, you guys cited that uh, 39, there's been a 39% reduction, essentially, in the number of liberal arts schools since 1990. So where are these schools going? Well, they're not disappearing, but they're evolving into something different from a traditional liberal arts college. Many of them are adding more um, professional programs, nursing, journalism, business, things of that sort. So an increasingly large percentage of their their students are studying professional fields instead of the traditional arts and sciences fields for for their majors. So what, what I guess, uh, can you elaborate a little bit about what is it that constitutes a traditional liberal arts education yeah. versus in, uh, some of these changed models? Well, a traditional liberal arts college uh, has a curriculum based in the traditional arts and sciences. The, the, the humanities, the, the arts, um, obviously the sciences, but um, very little attention to professional or vocational education traditionally. So they've had kind of a uniform mission um, characterized by um, usually residential populations, small intimate classes, close contact with professors, things of that sort. Mm-hmm. Um, so and to some extent, a homogeneous community, not necessarily ethnically or racially, but but in terms of what people were studying and talking about. Mm-hmm. So there, traditionally, there's a very live intellectual community, or at least that's the ideal of the liberal arts college, where people are discussing big issues together and stimulating one another's growth, intellectual development, um, broadening people's perspectives on life. So why is it that colleges are, or liberal arts schools are starting to add these uh, more um, career track kind of pathways into the curric- into the, like their larger curriculums. Well, the market's playing a much bigger um, role in education than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, maybe I should say 30 or 40 years ago, because <laughs> Brenneman identified this trend 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the, because the cost of college is so significant, a lot of people want to make sure there will be a job after graduation. 
So the professional fields are more directly connected to the job market. I mean, if you study nursing, you know what kind of jobs you're going to pursue. If you study English literature, it's not so clear. There, there are many jobs that an English literature person is qualified to do, but they're not quite so obvious. So uh, I think a lot of parents are uh, influencing their students to, uh, and, and to major in fields where there is a direct connection, so they'll be sure there's a return on their significant financial investment. So I guess would you say, or, or do you feel that the view of a liberal arts education has changed, that people don't, that value isn't there that used to be seen in some ways? Um, I think, I think um, some people understand the value of a liberal arts education. I think many people do not. And I think one of the things liberal arts colleges need to do is do a better job of articulating uh, the holistic value of a liberal arts education, including what kinds of jobs it prepares you for. Now, a lot of colleges have been uh, adding uh, activities that make help students make a more direct connection between job possibilities and the, and the fields that they're majoring. So internships, practicums, uh, courses connected, like, like, like technical writing courses, things that connect a, a, a discipline more directly to job opportunities. Um, so they're being more conscious about it. I think they need to get the word out more on how they're making these efforts to connect their education with, with job opportunities. Now, you mentioned um, the economy and kind of cosplaying uh, as a factor into, you know, parents perhaps pushing children away, you know, go into a field where you're guaranteed to get a job. But um, does cost of tuition have anything to do maybe with fewer people going to liberal arts schools? Um, uh, well, I, I'm sure it's a concern. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, because for for many years now, um, the cost of college has, in, has exceeded the uh, consumer price index or the rate of inflation. Uh, considerably. So uh, the, the basic cost of education has gone up quite dramatically, and I'm sure that's factored into uh, people's decisions about possibly uh, studying an area where there's a more direct connection with, with job possibilities. So if, if this trend is to continue, I mean, what does this what happens to the American education system, and I guess what kind of does it look like without having yeah. um, liberal arts as part of um, the system? Well, I, I mean, my biggest concern is that um, a liberal arts education, a traditional liberal arts college education, will not be available to uh, people I would describe as not among the academic and intellectual elite. For example, I was a first-generation college student, and I went to a small college in Ohio, Hiram College, and it exposed me to the liberal arts. Um, I probably would not have been admitted to Williams or Amherst or a place like that. Those mm -hmm. institutions will survive. They have huge endowments, uh, very loyal alumni. I don't doubt for a minute that they will be around 100 years from now. Um, but the smaller, less elite institutions that are under pressure to add uh, professional programs are um, more at risk. And, and my concern is that th these are the institutions where f that often serve first-generation college students or, or people from underrepresented groups. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I believe they benefit greatly from a, a quality liberal arts education, and that may not be available to them if these colleges gradually become more like comprehensive colleges and universities. So what are some of the strategies from preventing this shift um, and, and from keeping these institutions going? Yeah. Well, I think the institutions themselves have a great deal of responsibility to uh, articulate more effectively what their benefits are and how they are indeed preparing people uh, for, for work. I think they need to keep better track of their graduates and publicize more effectively where their graduates go and how they how their careers advance over time. Uh, I, th I think these colleges do need to make uh, a more serious effort, and many are, to connect their curriculum with, with education, with career opportunities uh, once they graduate. But I think there's also a role for like private foundations. Uh, for example, the Andrew Mellon Foundation is very uh, supportive of a, a small elite core of private liberal arts colleges. I think they need to broaden their focus <laughs> and start uh, supporting some of the institutions that are under more uh, pressure to, to conform to the, the, the move toward professional education. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Exposure today.
Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this important issue. That was MSU Professor of Educational Administration Roger Baldwin. He co-authored a recent study looking at the shrinking number of liberal arts schools in the United States. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Emmanuel Berry, Impact Exposure. A new study suggests that genetics of some women make them more susceptible to the pressure of being thin. Earlier, I talked about the study with its lead author, Jessica Swessman. So first, talk about what you found in the study. How does genetics come into play um, in regards to how people feel about being thin? Yeah, so so what we did is we measured something that we call thin ideal internalization. And basically all that means is um, how much does, in this case, a, wom- a woman, because we only studied women in, in, in this particular study, but how much does a woman sort of um, buy into the ideals of thinness that we all see in the media all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Open up a magazine or, you know, watch a movie or it, it's everywhere, right? So how much does a woman kind of buy into that and feel like I need to look like that? Um, So what we did is we had twins between the ages of 12 and 22 actually come into the lab and fill out questionnaires about their levels of this concept of thin ideal internalization. And what we can do with twins is we can compare identical twins who share all of their genes to fraternal twins who on average share about 50% of their genes. And by comparing if identical twins are more similar to each other than fraternal twins on this level of thin ideal internalization, we could uh, look at how important genes were. And so what we found was that there was a significant genetic component. Now, the environment was also important, too, but about 43% in the differences in people's uh, thin ideal internalization could be due to their genes. So I guess what does that say about kind of the concept of, you know, we're always like media is so influential about, you know, how we feel about our body image. So, I mean, is part of it is part of it it plays into genetics essentially. Yeah, so so basically how we're thinking of this is is obviously we don't have genes that are making us have the thought I want to be thin, yeah. right? That doesn't seem biologically plausible, but what we're thinking about this how we're thinking about this is that there's um People's, people's genetic predispositions might make them differentially susceptible to the things that we all see in the media. So some women can walk by a rack of magazines with thin models on the cover and not give it a second thought, right? Somebody else might go home and think, oh, I don't look like that, examine her own body in the mirror and start to feel negatively about herself. And basically what we're finding is part of that difference among women is due to differences in their genes. So you also mentioned um, environment playing a factor in this. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how that uh, can contributes to your your thin I- ideal I guess. Yeah, so um, so psychologists who use who use twins and do twin research, we um, we talk about three different things and we kind of get three different results from a twin study. We get uh, genetic influences, which I already talked about, and then we look at two types of environmental influences. One type is what we call the shared environment, and these are environmental influences that would make twins living in the same family more similar to one another. So these are things that are shared within a family, like having the same parents, going to the same schools, living in the same community, etc. And then there's also non-shared environment, which is just like what it sounds. It's things that make siblings in the same family more different from one another, experiences that they don't share. So perhaps having a different peer group or one one sibling being involved in one sport and the other sibling being involved in another sport, something like that. And what we found is that shared environmental influences were really minimal for thin ideal internalization, but non-shared environmental influences were pretty substantial. So what this suggests is that unique influences for each individual person are important in their level of thin ideal internalization rather than sort of family-wide factors. Okay, that's really interesting because I would have, you know, I, I, I guess I would have assumed it would have been the other way around. Yeah, um, and, and you know what, going into it, we actually thought it would be the shared environment as well because we sort of thought, well, also the fact that everybody sort of shares media exposure, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what these findings are suggesting to us is it's, it's the individual factors for each and each person. So individual genetic risk, individual environmental exposures, et cetera, rather than just sort of the baseline that most women in our society experience. Why did you guys do, decide to do this study? Um, what what were you setting out to find, I guess? Yeah, so um, we, we know that thin ideal internalization is related to the development of um, some pretty problematic behaviors like really strict dieting. It can lead to behaviors like binge eating and purging and eating disorders like 
anorexia or bulimia nervosa. Um, we know that thin ideal internalization is a risk factor for these things. So we were hoping that by better understanding what causes thin ideal internalization, we would be able to sort of start intervening and, and learn about how we can help people at that phase rather than when it gets worse and advances to something like an eating disorder. We also have known for a while, research has shown for a long time now, that there are genetic influences on eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia. So we were interested in whether there are also genetic influences on sort of this earlier uh, phase of thin ideal internalization. So the media is not all to blame. There's a bunch of other factors kind of coming into this. Yeah, so we can talk about biological, psychological, um, and of course the media as well, the context that we're living in mm -hmm. today. Um, but all of these things interact. There's never one one thing that we can pinpoint as the cause of something as complex as, as these thoughts and feelings. Um, did your study come to kind of any conclusions about um, suggestions for kind of how to address the potential issues that having a thin ID, um, a thin idealization um, can can have on a person? Yeah, we didn't specifically look at um, things like treatment or what a person should do who has, you know, thin ideal internalization. But we know from treatments that work for things like anorexia and bulimia, that's something that's important to think about is, is just trying to engage in activities that make a person feel good about him or herself and good about his or her body, rather than things that feel make you feel bad about yourself. So sitting around and staring at your thighs in the mirror when you think they're way too big, that's just going to make you feel worse. Do something that makes you feel good instead. Any other uh, interesting tidbits or findings that you weren't expecting to find in the study that were... Um different than what you expected at the beginning, I guess? Um, you know, for, besides the, the surprise with the shared environment not being as important as we thought, we weren't, um, we weren't too surprised by anything else. Um, I think the finding that genetic influences are important in in some regards, we were sort of expecting, given that we knew eating disorders and those sorts of things had genetic influences, um, but but we were sort of interested to find that it was at the same level. So the the amount of genetic influence was similar to that for things like anorexia and and bulimia. Um, so so that was interesting to us. It sounds it seems like this is sort of a consistent sort of progression. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and chat today. Yeah, thank you very much. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Each year, Spartans of all ages return to East Lansing to celebrate Michigan State University's homecoming. The campus is filled with excitement as we welcome Spartan alumni back. Impact's Abby Newton details the week's events. Campus was filled with smiles, laughter, and Spartan spirit as students celebrated homecoming last week. Often, people think of homecoming as a simple football game with alumni in the stands. But the Spartan homecoming consists of a jam-packed week with fun and exciting events planned by the Undergraduate Activities Board and sponsored by the MSU Alumni Foundation. Spirit and Traditions Director of Student Activities Board, Caitlin West, says homecoming is a great time of year. I think homecoming week is really great and really important. It really brings you together as a school and it shows a lot of school pride. There's no greater pride than being a Spartan and so it's just a great week to get to show that off and get to celebrate it. Um, it's a unique week of the year because you don't really get to do that again in the same way. Homecoming festivities began on Monday with a hayride around campus. Students and families bundled up in hats and scarves, grabbed a few free cookies, and climbed aboard the tractor trailer to get a tour of Michigan State University's campus, country style. Throughout the tour, volunteers gave passengers a brief history of campus. Junior volunteer Jordan Malkin said her favorite facts were about the well-known Spartan Rock and its long history. The rock originally, well, was originally found at the corner of Grand River and Michigan Avenue and it was moved to the Beaumont Tower, and then it was moved to where the Rock is. And it used to be a place for, like, engagement. People would propose there, and um, it's where a lot of people would uh, take pictures and stuff. And then they actually, because it was getting a lot of graffiti, they moved it to the police station. This was back when it was by the Beaumont Tower. They moved it to the police station, and everyone rallied. Like, they got the whole campus to rally against it, and later that day they moved it back. Following the Monday tractor ride, there was a trivia night on Tuesday, a craft night on Wednesday, and a lively Sounds of Homecoming concert on Thursday. During the concert, five a cappella groups gathered in the union to sing to an audience of 300 people. On Friday, thousands of students gathered around the rock to get free ice cream from the MSU Dairy Store because as freshman Rebecca Bronstein says, Of course, here for the free ice cream because MSU ice cream is awesome! Friday evening brought even more excitement as hundreds of students and East Lansing community members gathered to walk in the annual homecoming parade. Bronstein looked forward to walking in the parade. 
I'm going to be in the homecoming parade, so I'm just so excited for that. It's kind of cool because everybody's kind of getting together to celebrate the um, history of MSU. Many student organizations created floats to represent the homecoming theme. Spartans will make history. Each year, a panel of judges select a favorite float, and this year, the Associated Students of Michigan State University was deemed champion. The community flooded the streets as they cheered and chanted. Go green, go white. Children sat with glee as they were given free candy as well as high fives from Sparty. Girl Scout leader and MSU alum Julie Radusky brought her Girl Scout troop to the parade and spoke about her favorite part of homecoming. And my favorite part of homecoming is that it is a great way to bring our community and our campus together for fun, lots of candy, that's what the kids love most. And uh, it's just great to see great weather and people really pumped about Michigan State. Saturday welcomed both rain and hundreds of alumni to the MSU football game versus Iowa. Despite a tough loss in cold weather, Spartans were still glad to celebrate homecoming. For some, this year was their first homecoming. Freshman Asha Shaw said why this week was important to her. Well, see, I'm a freshman, so it's like the first time I get to know everybody and see everybody and see the atmosphere. Homecoming is like just basically seeing everybody come together. While others, like senior Hillary Young, celebrated their last homecoming as a Spartan student. Homecoming is really great because it's just a, like such a tradition on campus. Um, it's gone back as far as I'm sure the university's been around. Um, there's just so many traditions around it, and it's a lot of fun to get everybody excited about the football game and about the campus in general. Like everybody comes back, which is so fun to see old alumni come back with like their kids, and um, like I know it makes all of us excited to like you know look 10 years in the future and see you know where we're going to be at and be coming back for homecoming. So I think it's just a really a really good time to like get everybody together and reunite and remember that we're all Spartans. Um, I'm just kind of celebrating that. Reporting for Impact, this is Abby Newton. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Basketball season is on its way, and with it comes events such as the Izone Campout and Midnight Madness. Impact's Lindsay Benson gets us ready for basketball season. The Izone student section is designed for the most loyal and dedicated Spartan basketball fans. Every year, students attend the Izone Campout to gain points that will earn them the coveted Izone student section tickets. Junior Peyton Dawkins explained how she has been working towards these seats since freshman year. Basically, it depends on your game. This year depends on next year. And so, you know, a freshman year when we came to this and all the games that led us to get lower bowl. And then um, it depends on... Um, however many games you go to, if you don't have a good attendance, you get kicked to the upper bowl for um, the Big Ten games. That way we have like the most dedicated in the lower bowl at all times. Matt Martin, the vice president of sports operations, expanded on why these changes were brought on. Izzo and the directors like to hold the section to the same standard that the basketball team is held to. We think that we are the best section in the country. In order to maintain that standard, we think the best way would be to uh, uh, force basically the best fans to be in the best position on the court. So that was the goal. These fans endured cold temperatures and rainy skies during the Izzone campout. But it was all worth it for freshman Ben Labadi, who we caught up with at Midnight Madness just a week later. We're freshmen and we got lower bowl because we went to the camp out. What do you think of the Izzone camp out this year? Cold. About 35 degrees. We stayed there all night. It was good though. It was cool getting waken up by Tom Izzo at 7 a.m. Midnight Madness was a free event for the public to come and meet the 2012-2013 Spartan women and men's basketball teams, hyping up this upcoming season. For Spartan basketball fans Ross and Chad, Midnight Madness meant a great deal. What do you look forward most to about tonight? It's been a life dream of his, so it's literally on my bucket list. After quote-unquote flying onto the court as Iron Man, head coach Tom Izzo had some encouraging words to say about this upcoming season. This team's got a chance to be very, very, very good. And uh, I think the one thing that we haven't done lately, it's been three years since we've been back to the Final Four, you can catch the Spartans kick off their season with their first game on Tuesday, October 30th, starting at 7 p.m. against Northwood University, Florida. For Impact News, I'm Lindsay Benson. This week, I had the chance to speak with artist Ben Arthur, an artist Rolling Stone says has the looks and hooks of John Mayer. Fans of Ben, though, are getting more than just music with his newest release, If You Look For My Heart. So let's talk about your newest album, um, If You Look For My Heart, correct? That's right. And 
it's not just a novel, though. You've done a novel with it, <laughs> which I uh, was surprised to learn about, kind of different. Uh, how did you come up with that concept or idea? Sure. I had been um, playing a series of shows where I, I read a short story that I'd, I'd written and sort of tied it with a couple of songs that sort of vaguely, thematically um, connected with the, the narrative, and it always felt like cheating. Um, so there was... Um, I, I wanted to have something that was really grown as two pieces together that would actually I'm, I'm I sort of I love that sort of dark side of the moon Wizard of Oz thing where mm-hmm. they each sort of shift the other and and the actual work that you've heard a million times or watched a million times changes as they interact and and that's what I was hoping to be able to do. So how did you go about kind of writing these interconnected pieces? Did it change? Did the music change the way you wrote, were writing? Absolutely. Both Absolutely. Exactly. So um, it, each of them sort of mooshed and, and shifted and, and stretched and, and pulled um, the other one. And it was uh, frightening <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I, I didn't know what I was doing um, and I had never done that before. Um, but it was also really satisfying and, and um, fun to have uh, a broader palette of things to play with. Um, songs are so dense, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very small package that you have to sort of do a lot with um, suggestion. Mm-hmm. Um, and a book is so much more specific, uh, which it makes you feel um, kind of naked, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's also very satisfying to have a broader uh, spectrum to play with. And is this your first novel? or first It's actually my second. Um, I, I wrote another one called uh, The Lure of the Distant Sound um, a couple of years ago. Um, so I've been, I've been playing with it for a while. There's a lot of sitting around in music. <laughs> is there uh, really? <laughs> well, yeah. Like you put out a new record every you know two years, three years, four years, and there's only 12 songs or so. Um, and there's a lot that gets discarded, and there's a lot of you know hurrying up and waiting. So having um, a narrative, a long-form narrative project, that I can sort of dump, dive into, jump mm-hmm. into, or dive into, but not dump into. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, that gives me a chance to um, to to keep something going. And, and in some ways, weirdly, um, writing long form is much easier for me than writing songs. It just I just sit down and it's just very comfortable. And whereas the the songs, I feel a lot more panic. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the, the context of, of the story? So what exactly are the album and the novel about? Sure. Um, well, there are three characters in the book, uh, a woman who's having an affair, um, the man she's having the affair with, and a, a kid who works for um, the the guy. Um, and it's sort of... Um, it sort of wanders a little bit, um, like an Altman film or something, where it, it sort of goes from person to person. Um, and ideally, um, a reader will, you know, sort of get pulled into one story and feel excited about it and then, you know, abruptly shift into another person's head. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the woman who's having this affair knows it's not going to end well pretty much from the beginning. And indeed, <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> Although I, I, I've been asked a couple of times whether it was a, a, like as a morality tale or something. And it's like, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, not at all. <laughs> um, I, I don't really have a moral agenda. So. Okay. <laughs> uh, so would you like to play us uh, a song? Yeah, sure. Uh, so this this is a song um, called Holy Night that's, um, you know, there, there are two types of songs on the record. There are songs that are uh, what I've pretentiously been calling artifact songs, songs that actually appear in the book. Mostly those are sung by other artists, like uh, Rachel Yamagata sings two of them. Aesop Rock does one of them. Um and, you know, because I couldn't have myself in my own book. <laughs> but then there are these more thematic songs, and this is one of those, and it's sort of about um, uh, trust and the betrayal therein. I only responded to the email Because the spammer's name resembled yours Imagine my surprise on the screen before my eyes. It turned out that the note was from you. 
Why you feel compelled to do this in the form of a phishing scam? Though my mother's maiden name are my account numbers too, you know I'll cash any check for you. Oh, holy night! Oh, holy. Don't think I didn't recognize you that day outside the bar. Saying you'd been robbed and only needing eighty bucks to get home to your ailing mom. You followed me to the ATM. Carefully took my address. And you swore up and down. As soon as you got back to town, you'd send me a check for this and more. Is clear by now, but the returns that you promised were well above the markets. I invested everything I have in you. I invested everything I have in you. I invested everything I have in you. to Impact Exposure. That was Ben Arthur with the tune Holy Night off his latest album. Uh, so as you mentioned earlier on your latest album, you did some collaboration with other artists. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, what it was like working with these other people on this kind of on this novel narrative? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that was a, a sort of weird thing explaining to these people. I mean, I'm a huge fan of, um, you know, Rachel, uh, of course, uh, for years, Aesop. Like, I didn't even know him before this. Um, uh, Bobby St. Hours is an old friend of mine, but uh, also a huge fan of his. Um, Ace, in particular, was really interesting because I, a lot of people assumed that I had written him into the book once I got him to agree to be <laughs> on the album, which would be the smart way of doing it. Uh, but in fact, um, I wrote about this kid, Evan, as the kid, and he's obsessed with Ace's music. And um, I had written him into the book three years. In fact, we didn't get the track, and we didn't know we were going to definitely get the track from Ace until two weeks before I delivered to the record label. Wow. Um, and it was just a friend of mine, DJ Bigwiz, who who tours with him, in fact, just got off the road with him, um, sent him the track and said, hey, man, I don't know whether you consider uh, Wiz produced the track. Um, and he was just so gracious so sweet um yeah and (laughs) and it was just like wow because because having you know his work on the record um i don't know it just it it ties it together in my head anyway um in a way that that really works and and that track has gotten a lot of uh a lot of love uh out there in the world probably mostly due to aesop and less to me don't sell Um, yourself short yeah (laughs) he's pretty awesome as i say i'm a big fan so it, it was 
really fun and and lovely to be able to hide behind these huge talents um you know in within the the narrative of the book uh, Rachel at one point you know she sings at a concert that the the one of the the woman the main character Andrea goes to see her and and the sh- song she sings is about what this woman is is actually going through realizing that the guy she's seeing um is not going to be long for the world with her um and uh it was just really it was fun um to to get talent like that mm-hmm. uh doing these songs that that in the case with rachel i had written um and in the case with ace had collaborated with well thank you for joining us today uh and chatting it's been an absolute pleasure and for me yeah. and for me and how about a song to take us out all right i'm in of the city The mutter of traffic down below but I That was the artist Ben Arthur. His companion novel and CD called If You Look For My Heart came out this fall. If anyone can save me it's you save me it's you another gory morsel from the evening news and now on impact exposure we welcome the barred owls She's a good old hand. She lays eggs for the railroad man. Sometimes one, sometimes two. Sometimes enough for the whole crew. Cluck old hand, cluck and sing. Ain't had an egg since way last spring. Cluck old hand, cluck and squall. Ain't had an egg since way last fall. The Bard Owl singing Cuckold Hen. Uh, welcome to Impact Exposure. There's so many people in the studio right now. Uh, it's kind of bizarre, but uh, let's just 
uh, have you all introduce yourselves, uh, instrument, name, all that jazz, starting right. with my man over here. My name is Kirk Mason. I play the banjo and the washtub bass, and I also sing a little bit sometimes. My name is Emily Knott, and I play the guitar and the banjo. Um, my name is Alita Grinneveld. I do mostly backup vocals, and sometimes I play the dulcimer. I'm Meredith Brown. Um, I play fiddle. I'm Lene Jemison. I also play fiddle and make beautiful harmonies with Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chris Foster, and uh, in the band I play cello and mandolin. All right. So how did you guys come to be? How did all of you uh, people end up together uh, creating this band? Well, um, I started a Facebook group entitled Let's Start a Band, and then <laughs> there you have it, here we were. But the Fiddlers and I had worked together on The Grapes of Wrath, the MSU Theater Department's production, and they had us up in the third story of this rickety set playing old-time music. So that's how we first kind of came into being. And then since then you guys have added more and, and more the instrumentation. Layers growing and growing. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what is it that attracts you guys to playing this type of music? Um, Kurt, do you want to speak to this? Well, it's it's really fun. I know most of us are or were in the in the residential college in the arts and humanities, and they offer a course on um, Appalachian folk music. And uh, I think a lot of us took that course and were really interested in just that kind of music and that culture, so we could all come together and play that kind of music together. Uh, so how long have you guys been playing together, uh, I guess officially as the Bard Owls Beyond uh, the Grapes of Wrath play? Sometime since January, I think, was when we really all kind of got together. Um, yeah, it was around then. And how has it been being a new band, kind of? We're figuring it out as we go, definitely. <laughs> it's been a great band for all of us. Um, not only are we a great match musically, but we're also really great friends. Um, so we're all kind of learning how to be a band, and all of the... Um, you know, business that goes along with it. And we're learning together. It's really great. Now, you guys play traditional music um, as well as covers and write your own music. Uh, can you guys talk a little bit about the process of, of writing together and deciding what you're going to play and, and putting together arrangements? Well, um, a lot of the instruments write their own parts to each song we do. So while I do most of the writing of our original stuff, I'll just bring it to them and play it and say, what do you guys think we should do with this? And they'll give suggestions, we'll do some edits, and then they come up with these beautiful compliments. So, I mean, it's really been a joy to hear original stuff played with them because it, it's so much more than it started off as. It's a, it's a growing process. Would you guys uh, like to play us one more tune before you leave? I don't think this would be complete without a banjo joke. Okay. We have a tradition at our concerts. Whenever Emily is switching from guitar to banjo, there's always some lag time while she's tuning. So I'll usually go, uh, hey, hey, Chris. Hey, hey what, Linnea? What's the difference between a banjo and an onion? An on I, I don't know, Linnea. What, what is that? Well, no one cries when you chop up a banjo. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, Emily hates harsh. me. That's hard. <laughs> well, I've wanna... actually gotten Emily to make a couple banjo jokes too, so uh. so I know she's coming around. If you want to hear banjo jokes, uh, the Bard Isles are going to be at Max Bar uh, this Friday evening. So one more song to take us out, then. We'd love to. Of course, this one's a modern song called "Kids" by the band MGMT.
Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure.